Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 255. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Leland Holcomb. Let's put in some work, Kip. Well, we'll do just that, and hopefully to a reasonable degree, because you and I are going to be discussing and reacting to an article entitled, If Work Dominated Your Every Moment, Would Life Be Worth Living? This was published on Aeon on December 20th, 2017. It was written by Andrew Taggart and edited by Nigel Warburton. And in essence, this article, which was very lyrically written, so I would encourage you all to go read it, gets at the idea that increasingly our society is moving towards total work, which is a term coined by German philosopher Josef Piper in his 1948 book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And it is, quote, the process by which humans are transformed into workers and nothing else. And Taggart makes some really interesting points in this article, Leland, all of which I'm excited to discuss with you, but I also appreciated the garden paths down which this article led my mind. I think as a sign of any great writing or great art, you can get a lot out of the experience, but if it lasts with you, if it sits with you and holds your hand as you wander into new realms of thought or feeling, I think that's pretty powerful. And my first thought was that this question is somewhat of a privileged one, and I'd say ironically at that, because some of us have time to read articles online, and furthermore, to record podcasts about those articles with the likes of peers they find insightful, wise, and worth talking to. But there's a great deal of privilege in my ability to make this podcast with you, to read that article, and perhaps to an extent, to write for a living. In a hypothetical total work world, I don't envision much creative output of anything, at least in my understanding of total work. Anything that's not related to survival or the survival of our species feels like it would be filtered down and thrown away. I really like that contextualization, Kip, because I think it's really interesting to think about how total work or workism in this case could have been something that is actually a privilege of ours to actually think about work not being something that has to be the entirety of your life. So I think if you look at the timetable of our species, a lot of time has been spent in subsistence and figuring out ways to survive, and work was used as a mechanism for doing that. It wasn't considered something that defined you or that you could choose. It was something that had to be done. And I think now we're starting to take a turn towards looking at work as something that actually defines us in a much more direct way. And with that, perhaps it also results in this privileged sense of, I can choose the work that I'm doing and I can choose the role that work has in my life. And therefore, I can choose to not have it be totally controlling of me, or I might choose to have it be totally controlling of me. Although that choice might not even be in your hands if you weren't privileged enough to have that choice. Some people have to work all the time for their livelihood and have no choice. What I really appreciate is your phrasing that work defines us, or increasingly it is coming to. Most of us on our business cards, or profiles like LinkedIn, maybe even profiles on social media like Twitter and Facebook, will list what we are blogger, activist, thinker, CEO, these are nouns that I see on people's profiles, but at least for my tastes, I don't see enough of lover of long hikes in strange remote places, one who fears or has experienced loss. I think these are nouns that also define us, but to your point, not in our cultural vernacular, or at least increasingly, it feels like that's not the case. And to build upon your point, if work defines us, and we're entering a world into increasingly more and more work, 
disproportionately consuming our living time, will have fewer and fewer characteristics or traits. It won't matter that I enjoy woodworking because my job is analyzing data. Similarly, it won't matter what my son is like or what characteristics I love in him because he's at a virtually 24-7 daycare that I pay for with the money I earn from my job. I also don't have any pictures on my Instagram that don't feature work-related tasks or successes because anything spent on leisure there would be potential profit lost and the opportunity cost would be too high. I hope you and the audience never have to hear a kip like that, but in a world where work dominates, the diversity of spirit that we're all capable of really withers away in my mind. You simply won't have as much time and I would say intellectual or emotional space to explore yourself. In my conception, work, not unlike a factory, really benefits from singular focuses. And if you can manage one or two, that's great. But if you're a worker who's good at this one thing, at this one desk, that's often where a company needs you. In a very cynical and very reductive definition, I know. But here's where I'd reference a wonderful question you brought up in our pre-show recording, and that's the common one when you meet someone at a dinner party or really anywhere that you've started a conversation. What do you do? And I've long thought about this question. I both love it sociologically for what it reveals about our tendencies, wants, and thoughts, and loathe it personally, because to me it feels reductive to the excellent points you've made, and I wonder if it will become a modern anthem of a world influenced by workism, the force that Taggart keeps coming back to in this article. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about this article is that it does a good job of moving from the articulation of the problem as being that we would work too much to actually what the real issue that the author is fearing is how it's going to make us feel. It's going to make us feel more isolated or guilty when we're not being productive. Those feelings might be detrimental. I think that's an important distinction because I think what the author's trying to say here is that the problem with total work is that the personality traits and the thought style that make you a good worker might not also make you a happy person. Now, that's a really interesting thought I think that you can play with and think about. But when you juxtapose that with the fact that increasingly people are looking to work as an aspect that's fulfilling in their lives. So Pew just had a study on work as they routinely do. And they found, again, that work is the highest indicator for fulfillment in people's lives. It's the thing that they look for the most to define fulfillment in their lives. More than spouses, children, families in general, it's work. And I think that's really interesting also because this could be a really important place for impact, actually. Because if more people are looking at work for the fulfillment in their lives, that might be an entirely positive thing. Because now they're going to take more pride in the work they do. It could be a massive opportunity. Also, as people look to work for their community in a much more direct and big way and their support system and their life, it actually might lead to work becoming more like our lives and coupled with our lives, which has both fears of danger, but it also has the potential to maybe make our lives better as the lines between work and life kind of blur in a lot of aspects of, of how we live our lives today, especially in our tech-driven world. I find words like fulfilling and pride to be really value-laden here because fulfilling to me is personal. It doesn't always have to make sense to other people. Maybe even, you'd referenced spouses in the Pew Research, maybe even your spouse doesn't fully understand why you find your work fulfilling. I don't think they necessarily need to. I can envision myself, if I'm ever married, 
being quite happy, enjoying and loving something that makes sense to me, and also having a healthy relationship. But then terms like pride, which you bring up, are deeply interesting to me because, as remains true about our species, we are socially comparative. We look at others and see how we can contextualize ourselves through them. I look at you, Leland, and see a man that I respect and admire, who dresses in a certain way, who drives a certain car, has a certain job, etc., and certain of these characteristics are important to me because of how they will reflect upon me and my existence. I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast because of the eloquence you bring and what that then means to me. I'll be very transparent on the social capital I hope to generate there, as well as the insights I hope this generates for listeners, or the thoughts, the musings that I hope our conversations produce. And in a work capacity, I'm really intrigued by jobs we may or may not go for, depending on the opinions of others. You and I, having attended Kenyon College, our alma mater, can point to, I'm sure, shared acquaintances or friends we have who pursued certain majors or jobs after college because of the social status or encouragements by their parents or guardians. Perhaps they weren't passionate about biology, but they chose it because of the perceived career benefits. And I'm not throwing any shade there. I understand the value of surviving, having a profitable job, but oftentimes with profitable jobs, there are benefits. And I would say beyond a 24-hour gym or a nutritionist or on-site coffee, there are perks of simply being associated with certain names or brands, wearing a certain iconic piece of clothing that all employees get at this or that company. That's a phenomenon I find really interesting. But returning to the term guilt, I want to dig into that a bit more because I notice it in my life outside of work. With this podcast, I still at times feel guilty for the hiatus I took of a few months. I don't think I have any logical reason to worry about that. No one gave me any flack for it, and in fact, when I posted that I would take a break, a number of people, some of whom I hadn't heard from in years, reacted to the post or commented upon it, making me feel as though I may have been wrong in not taking a break sooner but there was still guilt associated with it even during the time off. It's like being on a vacation that you can't properly enjoy. And that's what concerns me about the idea of total work. I've started keeping a daily diary late in 2019, but I've missed a few days. And rather than celebrating the days I haven't missed and how thorough and detailed I've tried to be, reacting to the negative, when years ago, I never kept a diary. I don't have a written record of decades of my life, and yet in beginning to train myself to create one, it's still not good enough? I think that source of guilt may come from a variety of cultural factors, but some of which I've knowingly detached myself from. Problematic institutions, relationships I no longer find fruitful or instructive, but I cannot extricate myself from work, because that's how we survive, how we stay alive, and for some of us, how we get ahead and try to build better lives. I'd really welcome your thoughts on the guilt aspect of all of this. Thanks for returning to the concept of guilt, because I think it's really important. Because when you look at what the real problem here is, and this is a self-inflicted problem, the stress and anxiety that comes from focusing too much on things like work, and as a result, you can lose the ability to be creative and to think deeper. 
Because when you're stressed, you're forced to think about immediate needs and actions that you can take now to protect yourself. You don't have the ability to think creatively or get yourself out of that mind space. I think this haranguing impulse to get things done, to quote the article directly, is part of that, which is especially heightened by the fact that work can follow us home, like I mentioned before. And this has impacts not just in our inability to exit work, but also in opening us up to competition from sources that never existed before and thus putting way more stress and pressure on us. Now we're up against any student. They could work the same job we work. And not just students and people, computers. They can also take our work from us. So there's more and more need for us to be better and better and more and more productive because other people everywhere are going to fight harder. They're going to work harder. They're going to work longer than you. And ultimately, that's what's going to make the difference. And especially when you have computers enter the equation and computers can start doing more and more, start making others more and more productive. Even if you work a white collar job, a really well-paying job, for instance, to win the contracts that you need to win, to satisfy the expectations of your clients everywhere, you need to work a lot. You need to work around the clock. And that's why I think as a society and as a world, we're continuing to value that because we need to for productivity's sake. But we also need to be reminded that in the long run, you'll get more things done if you're a person that can work over a longer time frame. So the concept of burnout is very real. And I think that it comes as a result of that stress and anxiety, which we place on ourselves because we feel guilty that we're not being more productive because we know that others are and others can beat us. And the pressure's there from our bosses, from our family members, community to produce as much as possible. Those are all natural responses to a very, very competitive world, but they can have real ramifications if not taken very seriously. Ramifications that Taggart suggests, at least to me, we won't handle well as a society if we are in this mindset. In the same way that you shouldn't respond to a cave-in in a mine by attempting to dig even deeper until you reach the other side of the Earth's crust, I worry that we've reached a similar level of absurdity in the ways we've adopted near-total work, if I can coin or semi-coin a new term. I think about phenomena like gamifying our health, No longer is it a sufficient means or ends that endorphins, your own better mood, better lung capacity, etc., would be worth the effort of exercise, but now our species has become so trained, conditioned, whatever term you'd like to use, we need apps that show us running from zombies or adding points to a collective total to motivate us. And I do appreciate the value of extrinsic motivation, but I also think that total work denies us the interior soul that all human beings possess. There are ideas, Leland, and feelings that I'm sure you've experienced in your life that you could never put into words. And under a total work mentality, I think we would say as a society, their value is zero. What's worse, maybe, their value is negative. They're distracting you from work. Please stop thinking or feeling them. And it might not be so totalitarian or cruel, But I find that really absurd. We are human first and foremost, and we become workers. I think children might be our last line of defense in a circumstance like this because, at least until they are taught otherwise, there's a natural curiosity in play that is almost anti-work in a child. And that's something I hope we all cherish, well aware that children throw tantrums and are not always well behaved. 
And it's to this point of extrinsic motivation that I would encourage listeners and anyone really to think about random wanderings, musings that excite you. Is there a video you've been wanting to watch or a song that you haven't listened to in a while? I don't care how unproductive it makes you, within reason, enjoy it. Life is short and our complex sensory abilities as people make it pretty fantastic, textured, and multicolored. I like the way you put that again, Kip, because actually one thing I was thinking about in my life as well is the beginning productization of the aspects of my life, essentially putting them into work terms, because I feel as though that's what you have to do even with your hobbies, say. So for me, that meant figuring out either micro business models or micro productivity hacks for taking aspects of who I am and what I enjoy and turning them into like a website or into something productive around that in order to have something presentable to the world or to myself for what I'm doing. There aren't many things that I do that I'm okay with it being nothing. Although I'm actually working on that with some of my hobbies that I enjoy, like music and things like that. I enjoy the fact that I essentially leave it to myself or don't productize it, but I think that there's a growing emphasis on that in people because if our society values work very highly, but work has also changed in meaning and can be everything from a podcast, could be your job, to anything else really, that also opens up the opportunity for you to be a creative person and build a business model around that and redefine what work means to you. Because when you think about the people who have the healthiest relationship to work or who I believe to have the healthiest relationship with work, what you quite typically hear is, I can't believe they pay me to do this or something along those lines. It doesn't feel like work to me anymore. And so the optimist side of me is hoping that as our markets become more intertwined and art potentially might become even more valuable because it'll become a scarce resource in the face of more competitive markets or commoditized markets of work, that actually we might free up more time to be more creative and artistic. We'll just have to do it in a way that's defined as work because that's how our society values things is in terms of work output. But if we're willing to be creative and flexible with how we define work and take the initiative to really design and build our life around the things that we like doing, work might literally resemble our life because there'll be little products around the parts of you that you enjoy. There'll be the podcast kip. There'll be the talking with friends kip. There will be the gardener kip. Whatever you want could become actually part of your work life. And eventually, we might even become the product that we are. Our work output might actually be ourself and our humanity. Because especially now, I think a lot more media is out there and people are now connecting with each other much more deeply and looking for authenticity among others, partially because they're spending so much of their life working too and actually disconnected from other people. But there is an optimistic lens through which to look at this that work is being redefined. And even though work has a bigger aspect in our lives, if that work is taken to better resemble our life and how we want to live and is aspirational, it might result in more good and well-being for both us personally and our society. You mentioned scarcity and under total work, Taggart remarks that time becomes the enemy, a scarcity, and I would add, not a gift you've been given. One of the reasons I get excited about meeting a creative person or someone with ideas yet to be explored or worked with is that they still have, under my presumption, many years yet to live. Even a single year could be incredibly influential and, in a non-work sense, really productive for all of the experiences, emotions, and thoughts it could produce. But to view time as the enemy, I think, is really backwards. 
it's as though we focus on the absence of a heated seat in a hypothetical bicycle and fail to appreciate the crucial presence of its wheels. A bicycle is a form of transportation, and sure, it's great if it has amenities, but that's not, I would argue, the philosophical purpose of a bike. And similarly, you can conceive of time in any number of ways, but I think under total work, we do so in a very limited sense. And it's my hope that, like 1984, this article is more dystopian concern than sage prediction of a world we will come to occupy. And Leland, for one of my final comments, I'd like to read a portion of Taggart's final paragraph of this article. Quote, For what is lost in the world of total work is art's revelation of the beautiful, religion's glimpse of eternity, love's unalloyed joy, and philosophy's sense of wonderment. All of these require silence, stillness, a wholehearted willingness to simply apprehend. If meaning, understood as the Luddic interaction of finitude and infinity, is precisely what transcends, here and now, the ken of our preoccupations and mundane tasks, enabling us to have a direct experience with what is greater than ourselves, then what is lost in a world of total work is the very possibility of our experiencing meaning. What is lost is seeking why we're here. I would, of course, invite anyone to reflect upon that, and again, to read the article in full. But Leland, before we formally conclude, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to our conversation? I like these closing remarks because I think it does a good job of, again, reminding us to think about what we want in life and why it's important that we're living life and to help remind us to find balance in what we're doing. Because hopefully this article can be a form of motivation by showing you a worst case scenario for us to take account of who we are and who we want to be and to work and to use our work to mold us and our society more towards that person and that way of thinking and to try to fight some of these very, very natural and often environmentally caused feelings of guilt, stress, doubt. I just urge listeners to try not to be afraid to take on their views of work and to really make work work for them. I wholeheartedly agree. And I have two different comments. First, I'd like to address those who are out of work, in between jobs, or have yet to actually have a job, depending on how old you are, and say that whatever you're doing, I hope there's something or someone deeply fulfilling in your life. To the latter, I hope you're the first person you find fulfilling in your own life. And to those who do currently have jobs, I'd invite you to bring up this topic with your boss, with your managers, even with coworkers. I recognize that it's not easy or comfortable, but I do believe that it's something to be explored gently, gradually, in any way that you can, because there's a chance people around you would like to see you in a more multidimensional capacity. That said, I've worked with people before who've earned my great respect in indicating that they just wanted to be colleagues and coworkers, and to me those boundaries are really important and edifying. And lastly, Leland, one thing I've really appreciated about this conversation is that you and I certainly prepared, took notes, read an article, and thought about it, which reminds me a lot of academic work, and yet I thoroughly enjoyed this, got a lot out of it, and because of your comments and reflection, I have a new lens through which to interpret this article. 
And that's not only a gift to me, but maybe a model for listeners that there are routes through work and enjoyment that blur the lines a bit. To your earlier comment, Leland, about wondering why you're getting paid to do something, I do think that can be one of the metrics of a really great job. But of course, work being complex, we'll have to come back to it another time. Until then, thank you very much for sharing all that you did and sharing your off-work time with me and the listeners. Thanks again for having me, Kip. It's always fun. A word whose meaning I hope I never forget. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we'd earnestly love to hear from you. So if you have any opinions, comments, or thoughts of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like pre-episode recordings. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.